it's a really psychologically grinding process to become that successful when you're that young but probably at any time to become that successful is, is an odd thing this is the we make success happen podcast with matt callanan hello everyone today there'll be a podcast my name is Albie. If you want to raise the profile of your business or your personal brand, having your own podcast is a great way to achieve it. I'm giving away 50 of my top secrets that help get this exact podcast to number one and created a stack of exciting opportunities. For your free download, go to mypodcastsecrets.com. That's mypodcastsecrets.com. Subscribe, rate and review the We Make Success Happen podcast. I've always been intrigued by what makes people successful, what success needs to them, and how we can apply their techniques to make our lives more successful. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan. Hello and welcome to We Make Success Happen podcast. Today, with amazing human and gorgeous lady, Charlotte Church. Hello. Hello. How goes? How goes, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question that I normally ask other people at the end. Mm -hmm. What does success mean to you? Um, hmm. What does success mean to me? I think success to me is something that isn't about, I suppose, the traditional idea of success of you know gathering materialistic stuff which I imagine it is for a lot of people but you know I'm always searching for something a bit deeper a bit more fulfilling um so success to me I suppose is finding meaning in things because we're creating we're, we're meaning making machines our brains are meaning making machines and so being able to successfully create meaning out of uh this physical reality that we are experiencing and I think that's what brings us the contentment and happiness and and those sorts of things so yeah it's being able to find meaning in in the things that I'm doing whether that's in personal relationships whether it's in the work that I undertake yeah all of it and and also remembering because I think a great deal of our human experience is just is actually just about remembering how to how we've always done this stuff. We've got all of the wisdom. We've got so much innate wisdom within us. <laughs> Me talking about this in this costume as well. I look ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> we've got so much innate wisdom within, and so I think a great deal of our existence is should just be about remembering. So success is being it remembering well, remembering to remember. <laughs> Yeah, because did success mean something different to you when you were, say, 16, 18, 20? Totally. I was far more than, um, I was more of a normo. What's a normo? Uh, a normo, just sort of quite mainstream, have very mainstream opinions, didn't ponder too deeply about many things. Did you know you were a normo then? Um, <laughs> I don't know, probably, yeah. I think I was striving to be a normo. 
I was really, you know, I, what, my situation was so out of the ordinary that actually that's all I craved. I just wanted to be like everybody else. Right, so you mean, And also, yeah. you know, as, as a teenager as well, that's what you want as well. You just want to be like everybody else and to stand out. I, I think it's, it, might, it might be becoming slightly more different now in a way, but in a way it's even more about conformity, youth nowadays when you look mm. at things like TikTok. Like it's like an anthill. Yeah, I, I craved being to to be normal, yeah, and to fit in. But yes, it, it meant back then. You know, I was very much um, into clothes and image, and you know, all of that sort of stuff, which I just don't really care about anymore. <laughs> <laughs> when do you think it clicked then for this kind of remembering and the meaning sense of success? I think it's just happened over time. Last I, week. Yeah, last week <laughs> during lockdown. Um, it's just over time you start to understand, you know, patterns, you know, patterns of behavior, patterns of trauma that we all carry. And, you know, life is about trying to reintegrate certain things back into your person. I think of everybody's been through trauma. Everybody's got loads of pain and loads of dark stuff that, that we all carry with us. So yeah, I think it's about just trying to reintegrate yourself as a whole and the, the vast, you know, not, not the vast majority of the time, every time that has nothing to do with money or stuff or beauty or, you know, any of the sort of shallow societal things that we put on a pedestal. And so it's, yeah, it's, but, but it's a general, it's a, it's an, it's an unshackling. And now I think I'm just really interested in creating systems. I, you know, I, I still love singing and making music and all of that. And I will always do that until I die. But the thing that I'm really interested in, in trying to tackle is education because I think the way that we educate is completely outdated and in part quite harmful to many people. I think some young people can get through it and can, you know, mold themselves to fit into the boxes and to fit into the shapes that the system needs them to be. Um, but for many people, that is deeply impactful on their lives and, and, and often in a negative way. So I think the way that we educate is very flawed and uh, I would like to try and be a part of how we can change that. So I've set up a school and a charity called the Awen Project, which aims to eventually help to empower and seed fund communities to set up their own democratic creative schools. So yeah, we started that last September We've got 19 students aged between 8 and 13. And um, we're literally in our last week now, in our last week of term. So it's been a, an amazing year. Like the exponential learning curve has been like that. <laughs> exponential. Um, very, very steep. Very, very steep. And fascinating. By far the most creative thing I've ever been a part of. And essentially... Really? What, the most creative thing you've been by part far, of? By far. Uh, that, and and that, that's what education should be, I think. Um, Why do you think that is? Is that because of the kids and their kind of train of thinking? You're just like, oh, right, I hadn't thought about that or that pathway? Or Well, I think when you are 
what we what at the Aaron Project, I suppose we're trying to do, part of what we're trying to do is is say, whilst adults have a lot of great knowledge in, in which to curate to children, it isn't about the old ways. It isn't about patterns of behavior. It's about empowering students and listening to young people to be able to create their own systems, to be able to create their own societies based on stuff that we know now rather than you know, stuff that we just sort of have been conformed into thinking. And, and that's part of the democratic element of the of the education. So they're basically forming their own little society. Um, they get a say in every every person within the school gets a say in everything to do with the school, the rules, the punishments, the curriculum, all of it. They they have a huge voice and a huge part in everything to do with their education, which takes up a huge part of their childhood. Yeah. And it's just fascinating to watch, you know, at the start, the democratic meeting, which they renamed the gathering. Can you explain how that works? Because I've seen it sort of happen, but for the viewers and listeners, how does that work? So it happens twice a week and anybody can put anything on the agenda. A student chairs the meeting, a different student each week. We have got a permanent chair at the moment, so that lasts, that's a, but a permanent chair is about three weeks to a month. And it, that means that that's a skill within itself, being able to chair and hold a meeting. So One of the kids is the chair, yeah. Yep, so one yeah. of the kids is always the chair. And they discuss all sorts of different things. They discuss behavioural stuff. They discuss the things that they want to do, things that they're unhappy with within the school and how it runs, things, how they want things to change, um, different ideas. And some things work and some things don't. And as, as the adults, the adults also have a vote, but obviously are outnumbered by the children. So the, the, <laughs> the, the children have the, the majority. Yeah, the adults also have a say in what happens. But a lot of the time it means as an adult potentially foreseeing something that might not work. But you have to let it, you have to let it sort of play out. Cause, cause well, even if it's chaos, say. In- it's, it's never chaos. And actually the more you know, it, it very quickly becomes quite ordered and quite structured because as they're learning, okay, that doesn't work and okay, this yeah. doesn't work, then things naturally become, they could become better at it. And isn't that the point? Mm. So it's been really fascinating. And sometimes it's, you know, it's very frivolous stuff. Like where are we going to you know, have our birthday parties? And sometimes it's really deep you know uh questions that society itself is struggling with like you know should we have separate boys and girls toilets or you know how you know what what are we going to do with this person in our community who you know is, is a bully or whatever it might be so often they're very complex questions that adults don't have any answers for really yeah really utterly fascinating process and what i i hope that we can do as the awen project is empower other communities and it doesn't just have to be in the uk throughout the world to do this for themselves to to set up their own schools because i think that's what it needs to be mm. when you've got a in many places in the world including the uk you haven't got enough funding in education for whatever reason whether it's you know purposefully being defunded or whether there isn't enough money whether there's too many children whatever it might be the state is struggling to to provide a a, a decent education for everybody and um i think that this covid-19 pandemic is is being a great teacher 
harsh one, but I don't think we've learned all the lessons that this pandemic has to give us yet. And so I think that I think that lots of things in society are going to change and transform, including people's work hours and and maybe including education as well and how we educate is making us have to have a little think and also to slow down because the world was going at such a pace, such a rate of change uh, because of the speeds of technology that we we just weren't stopping to think about anything um, and about how we were doing things. We were just sort of on autopilot and then also just this sort of capitalist, insatiable, consumerist monster get back to work get shopping again (laughs) and and of course that's what world governments are sort of saying at the Mm. moment it's like okay well we need to we need to save the economies and maybe we do maybe that's maybe that's where this is going to go personally i feel like we're going to keep trying get trying to get back to normal and this this pandemic is going to keep sort of going nope you're not you're not learning what you should be learning, but it depends what you believe, isn't it? <laughs> if you believe that this is a Wuhan conspiracy, if you believe that this is a five G conspiracy, I mean, there are so many conspiracy it's theories all about the five G. I mean, personally, I sort of <laughs> think that um, I sort of believe that perhaps you know evolution uh, is conscious somehow, and this is a, a, a very big stop. To humanity, you know, we are, we're ruining the planet very, very quickly now. Mm. And I can't think of another thing, you know, but before, before COVID-19 hit, who could have imagined that the world would stop like this? Mm. It was just unimaginable, completely unimaginable. There's lots of lessons to be learned from this pandemic and hopefully we learn them. But I'm not sure if we've got much choice in the matter. Yeah, it might be forced upon us, isn't it? When did education become important to you? Was there a certain event that happened or when did you want, especially if it became like almost more important to you than music? I think that with the birth of my children, I mean, it's, well, when they were little, I didn't think about it at all. I'd never really thought about education before. I myself had quite a weird education. I had two tutors on the road. I'd still go back to school when I was home, but my education was traveling the world and working. And it was an incredible experience, hardcore, like really, like I had so much responsibility and pressure, but also like what amazing exposure to all sorts of different things and people and environments and countries and cultures. So I'm very grateful for the education I had. So what was the big education you learned then from that part of the journey so much I mean just I think more than anything it's about exposure it's about different exposure to different things in life and traveling the amount that I did singing with different orchestras all over the world you know I did you know I worked with some incredible artists people like James Horner and gosh like so so many amazing really powerful people. I signed for presidents and popes and, you know, I was just, I just had this crazy, (laughs) crazy experience. But also I was doing, you know, interviews daily and, and that, and in, you know, that was, 
very complex in different ways, you know, because sometimes you'd be in on a TV show in Brazil and sometimes you'd be in Japan and it was all very <laughs> culturally different and you have to adjust. And um, so it's difficult to pinpoint what it was. But in part, it was the fact that I had to take, I had quite a lot of responsibility. I had quite a lot of autonomy in parts and I, and I did a lot of traveling. So, but with my two, it was when we started looking at schools for them. So when Ruby was about three and we were going around to, to the local primaries and I didn't want them to go to private school. Um, I don't believe in private education, but the, the primaries were, were nice enough, but something just didn't feel right. It just felt a bit like, oh, they're really little. <laughs> they're, they're so little. Like it almost, it was, it was like almost sending them to a, like a full-time job. When you say little, do you mean little in thinking or they were, little, little? They were just little, you know, they were, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be sending my four-year-old to like a job, a, you know, a Monday to Friday, half past nine till half past three job, like it's quite a lot. Um, so that was the first thing that made me go, I don't, I don't think I, I want to do this, you know, because otherwise you just sort of go along with it, don't you? It's just what happens. It's supposedly the norm, isn't it? Yeah. What everyone else does. Yeah, totally. It's just what happens and you've got stuff to do and, you know, and you want to get on with your career and this, that and the other. So you just sort of, this is what happened. We found a, a little Steiner school for them, which was lovely. It was like a home from home learning environment, but no structured learning until they were six or seven but even that then wasn't quite right. It was. It's based on the sort of a hundred-year-old dogma of of this dude Rudolf Steiner, which is fine, you know, if you're into that. But it's not very scientific in terms of what we know about the brain and learning and cognition and stuff nowadays. So um, then we were like, and 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 all throughout this time, so our family and stuff were like quite anti what we were doing. Oh, you know, they need to learn to read and write. You're going to put them yeah. at such a disadvantage. And so we had a lot of resistance. And then we said, uh, so then we pulled them out of the Steiner school and we were like, okay, um, we might have made a bit of a boo-boo here with this alternative education. So let's, we'll homeschool them for a year and then we'll put them back into the mainstream system. And, you know, we, 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 we've tried this alternative progressive education. And then when we homeschooled them for a year, it was lush. It was really great. We got to, I didn't do it solely myself. It was me and my husband. After a year of doing it ourselves, we got a part-time teacher in because a couple of other kids joined us as well then. And then we mm. were like, oh God, because teaching other people's children as well. So what? It, it was a natural thing that it wasn't actually sort of planned in that way. No, not at all. Mm, okay. Not at all. Didn't plan any of it. <laughs> um, yes, just sort of just circumstance and just happened. But yeah, it was it was a really great experience to start to think about education and, and what you wanted to what you want your kids to know and learn and be a part of. And I, me and my daughter really struggled at the start. Um, As in your relationship? Or... Yeah, she just really didn't want to be. I was trying to be a teacher essentially, yeah. and because um, I guess that's a different role to being a, a mum, isn't it? Absolutely, mm. and so. Uh, and she really rejected that from me, like just just could not deal with it. And so then we just went out into the forest and I started doing forest school stuff. And we'd still do bits and bods of academic education, but out in the forest. And we do it through the idea of, you know, making 
treehouse models and understanding how different tribal cultures might build their houses 50 foot up in the or 50 meters up in the tree canopy and all this sort of cool different stuff that you can bring in but just to get outside the classroom just made me stop trying to be a teacher as well which I think is really important mm. as in the traditional sense of what a teacher should be absolutely because mm. there's the, there's a power there's a power dynamic and there's a hierarchy mm. and mm. um and there's a hierarchy of knowledge of, as, as well of course yeah, yeah. um and what we want to try and do with the Owen project I think more than anything is is make people feel competent and uh, I, I think that that is something that uh, education in general isn't really doing necessarily but, you know, as soon as people, you know, start to feel quite competent, then they generally start flying. But the thing is, is that when you spread it across so many different subjects and stuff, nobody's going to be competent in all of it. And do we need all of that junk anyway? <laughs> exactly. And it becomes so it, it's harder to facilitate, of course. Mm. And you want people to have some sort of base knowledge about you know around a lot of different things so they can understand what they are interested in and what they're not interested in but it's just not how the world works is it mm. people are, are different humans they are capable in different areas so then we homeschooled for four years and it was brilliant really really um great process and I think this also coincided with in terms of my activism and things that I was trying to give back trying to do to to help out to try and make the world a better place wasn't really working out you know I was a big part of the anti-austerity movement I really believe in kindness and a social safety net and community and these sorts of things and obviously we've had a Tory government for 10 years which don't <laughs> believe in the same things that I do but you know I got to a stage where the things that I was trying to make better it was just a bit like going outside and banging pots and pans on New Year's Eve, you know, just making a whole lot of racket, a big load of noise, and nothing really seemed to have that much of an impact. Or um, you'd probably have to go into politics, and even then it's probably a massive struggle anyway. Totally, and the, but the, also the idea of going into politics as is, I mean, it's toxic. It's a toxic, toxic place. Seems like a dirty game. Absolutely, it? and I've got no interest. Again, like, I want to be a part of something which is about creative change, which is about, you know, a metamorphosis, a transformation. And I don't know if you can... This, is a, this is a, goes back to a belief thing, but I'm not sure if you can do that from the inside... I sort of think you need to create systems outside. There's a, there's a, I think his name's Buckminster Fuller. He's an economist. I think he's like a right wing economist as well. Mm. But he's, he, there's a great quote of his, which says that, you know, it, to have change, you need to create a better system essentially, which, um, is just better than the, than the old model. Yeah. And I guess may not actually exist. Yeah, totally. So mm. just, just creating new systems of how things work. You mentioned there that you wanted to sort of give back and help make the world a better place. Why is that? Because I think it's a, a, a duty of all humans that at some point it is best for everybody, including yourself, to figure out what it is that you're going to bring to the party. You know, there's lots of research showing that to philanthropy, charity, you know, kindness, giving back, all of that sort of stuff is really beneficial to us as well and our mental health. 
And I think within the pandemic, particularly, but even before then, we are in a bit of a crisis of meaning in the world. I think that's why a lot of people are starting to feel feel the effects more and more of mental health disorders. We're becoming a bit more disconnected because of social media and such and um, smartphone addiction, which I think is a huge problem. We're having a bit of a, a mental health crisis and a crisis of meaning. And in part, again, I think the, it's about remembering. I think the answers are very simple, really, really simple, a bit boring in a way, <laughs> you know, to go, oh, I see it's about community and connection and helping and me figuring out who I am and where I fit within this and what I can bring, you know, what are my skills? Who is it that I want to help? What am I passionate about? And how, how can I do that? And how can I fit that into my to my life where I have to do this other stuff, whether it's I have to, you know, make money or hold on a job or however your existence is. If we all do a little bit of that, then it's going to go a very, very long way. Um, whether it's the the climate and ecology that you're passionate about, whether it's human beings, whether it's animals, you know, there's loads of choice out there <laughs> for, you know, things and people and planet in crisis so there are lots of ways in which to be helpful uh, and again maybe it goes back to that thing about competence to really start to feel like that you are valued and needed which a lot of people currently aren't feeling and I think that's just ramping up anxiety and stuff what do you want your legacy to be um legacy to me is quite a masculine thing do you think yeah how do you want to be remembered traditionally <laughs> I don't need to be remembered. Mm. I just want for, I suppose, the thing, I think that children are the last people on earth to be liberated. And I think that if we start to think about children's rights, yeah, if we start to think about children's rights and how we stop systematically making children conform to the old ways, and that isn't necessarily that, that, that there isn't wisdom within the old ways, but actually, the majority of the stuff that we're doing at the moment is not really working. So we we need to re, be rethinking this stuff and we, re, we need to be co-constructing it with our young people. So I think that obviously the masculine and the feminine on earth is 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 completely out of whack, has been out of whack for quite a long time. I think that we need to really start to think about how we raise women up and how we create a more equal society for everybody that it's not equal for. I think that wealth inequality is a huge issue. I don't know, even know how you start with that because obviously the, the 400 wealthiest people in the world is someone that owns like 60% of all of the wealth mm. on earth, mm. like 400 people. It's like unbelievable. But yeah, there are obviously some gargantuan problems but there are some very creative, very smart people who are working on them. And I think it's about just a willingness to change. What's the one thing you were told about success, maybe early on, that you now know to be false or untrue? Hmm. There's bound to be loads. <laughs> I had loads of really bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> really? Absolutely. Well, from a whole range of people. From a whole range of people, from lawyers to managers to friends to parents. 
loads of bad advice. Um, Were you always the sort of final decider or the decision maker sort of thing? Well, no. In in different... I mean, of course, as a teenager, I felt like I didn't have anywhere near enough control and uh, and all the rest of it. But actually, looking back, my parents are pretty good. And they did try and give me as much autonomy as they could in the situation. But then again, you know, I was a commodity. I was earning you know, different corporations, tens of millions of pounds. And so uh, a child's autonomy gets somewhat lost in that. Um, I'm trying to think of particularly bad advice about success. I think a lot of my success was down to luck. I think a lot of people's success is down to luck. And that's maybe a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. Maybe it's not true as well. (laughs) Maybe it is all completely hard work and you create your own at least conditions for for success to manifest, which I absolutely believe in as well. I believe in, you know, hard work and perseverance and patience and all the rest of it. But I absolutely think that for for me I was in, I was incredibly lucky. There's, you know, there was lots of very talented people that I knew growing up who didn't get anywhere near the success that I got. So yeah, who's to say how, you know, success to, to, to the level that I got to, which was quite rare, especially for my age, where that came from. But also success to that level is is a very strange experience as well because you become public property mm. and because you become... Um, Do you kind of realise that at the time that you're in that public property space? Oh, you can't not realise it. Like Mm. it's very, very, yeah, in your face. You can't, you are, people feel like they own you. Is it a horrible feeling or is it a weird feeling or? It's just weird. I I think again, as a child, for me going through it as a child or as an early teenager, you accept a lot of stuff much easier than you would if you were an adult. Mm. You just sort of go with the flow and you're just trying to figure stuff out because you know so little anyway. Yeah. A lot of it was, yeah, just trying to, just trying to figure out what it was all about. Well, yeah. When you say luck, why do you think you were lucky then? Like, you know, doing things at the right time and... Yeah, absolutely. I, I had I had natural skill and ability and talent and I worked hard at it and I loved it. I had such passion for it. I loved singing. And then, you know, when I started to you know, travel the world and become famous and do interviews and go on TV and stuff, I was genuinely, like, absolutely overjoyed to be there. And I came from a family of performers and everybody in my family is really outspoken. So I, I, I wasn't shy. I was, you know, quite happy just to go and chat <laughs> wherever I was, uh, which people seem to like. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really psychologically grinding process to become that successful mm. when you're that young. But probably at any time to become that successful is, a, is, an, is an odd thing. Because, yeah, it, it puts you in a realm of where, where very few people are. Mm. And it, it, when you're a child, there are even few people, even fewer people there. But I, I also wasn't really into, I used to, I used to just want to come home all the time. Like I wasn't interested in any sort of celebrity scene or hanging out at awards ceremonies and stuff. I just wanted to come home. I wanted to go to the under 18s disco in Cardiff if I could, (laughs) which most of the time I couldn't. Um, But 
that's what mattered to me. My world was actually quite small. But yes, yeah, success to, to, to that level is a funny thing. For a lot of people, it's probably the most natural thing in the world. You know, this is what I deserve. And But for me, it was an uh, odd, very odd. And actually, I much prefer my life now where I can foray into the limelight if, if I want to. And I still feel like, you know, if I wanted to have a lot of success again, I could, but I'd have to compromise some of my values about what I think is important or what I think is good, what I think is worth making because the, you know, the main, I'm not very mainstream anymore. And the mainstream sort of requires, you know, a certain amount of waffle (laughs) for want of a better word. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm quite happy with where I am. I get to to keep, you know, my little bubble sacrosanct and, and my children safe and, and not growing up in the limelight and such, which is really important to me. So you've got a bit more control, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Because did you feel out of control when you were sort of like younger or being a teenager? Then? Yeah, and I think part of that as well is, is the pre- was the press intrusion and the press mm. interest which is, it was just so cruel. Mm. It was a, it's a really, really cruel industry. And obviously now that's shifted. Now that's more like social media platforms and, and normal people being able to say absolutely heinous things. But yeah, for me, it was all wrapped up in being on, being splattered over the front page of something and, and having my and my boyfriends, you know, my boyfriends when I was a teen- teenager selling stories, selling sex stories, which was gross. All sorts of really crazy intrusions. So, yes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. It's not a very nice process to go through. It is, however, as everything is, a teacher. Yeah, because I guess you, you've sometimes got the press and everyone on social media kind of jumping in if they want to as well. Yeah, and and I and I don't really have that so much anymore. I mean, I I still do. If I a couple of years ago I went on Question Time, and I spoke about um, uh, you're the, very I, good on that. Oh, thank you very much. I spoke about the idea. How was it on the other side? Actually, kind of sitting horrendous. There? Was it? It's absolutely horrendous. <laughs> it's so nerve wracking. Well, because it's live or. Because it's live, because it's politics, so it's like, you know, it was out of my comfort zone. I did it twice. Did I do it twice? Yeah, I did it twice. And also, you know, you're, you're cannon fodder, <laughs> really. But also, you want, you want to get across what you want to get across, but also there is, you know, there are so many people who are just waiting for you to say the wrong thing. Like trip up or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so I uh, talked about an idea that part of the Syrian civil war was to do with climate change, essentially, that there had been really bad droughts in Syria in the, in the months preceding. And um, so there'd been mass migration from rural areas to the cities, which puts extra pressure on the resources and such. Uh, and so that 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 had contributed to the start of the Syrian civil war, and this was uh, I think the sun went with voice of an angel, brain of angel delight, um, and this was you know this was after this is after years like I hadn't been tabloid fodder for for a while, yeah. and then and then social media was going crazy, and all these right wingers were coming out left, right, and centre 
Charlotte Church thinks that ISIS is because of, you know, global warming and you know, this sort of stuff, which isn't that bad. But then I made, I got quite a lot of abuse as well. But yeah, for, for me, I, I feel like that's, it, it's not quite my, my generation, you know, in a way that's um, for people who have been famous now in the last five to seven years who have really had that horrific social media stuff. I mean, I do, it really, it does annoy me. I do sometimes have Twitter spats with people like Piers Morgan and such. <laughs> and then you get, again, you get, it really ignites and inflames loads of, loads of right-wingers, but also loads of bots. Yeah. You know, let's remember that yeah. this is, for some reason, there are people who were purposefully trying to make this social, social media a really confusing, really negative, heinous place through the use of AI and, yeah. and bots and stuff, which is Make baffling. people think a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's about influencing, but also it's just about chaos as well. Mm. Really interesting. One of Putin's um, right-hand men, a guy called Vladislav Surkov, he was, I, I don't think he's still one of Putin's right-hand men, but a couple of years back he was, and he came from a performance, a performance art background and so he was the one who brought into Russia this lot of this misdirection okay. and this um, not necessarily fake news, but they would fund lots of differing organizations and different opinions and viewpoints in Russia just to muddy the waters, just to create... Um, Distraction techniques or thing or something. Yeah, but it's more about just muddying the waters so mm. you, don't, you don't understand what reality is anymore. And I feel like this is potentially what's happening on, on a world scale now, mm. especially when you look at the rise of conspiracy. So for me right now, that's the most worried. That's the thing I'm most worried about. I am most worried that conspiracies, all of these different conspiracy theories are becoming a much more widely accepted part of what people believe and think. And that's a real problem. Because I, I don't know how you fight it because mm. people feel people are seemingly almost religious in their belief of this, of this sort of stuff. And I sort of think, I mean, I'll, I'll give attention and I'll listen to every viewpoint, but it's about uh, confirmation bias, isn't it? Is that, and, and fundamentally what it boils down to for me with the conspiracy stuff is that either you think there's a big baddie or a group of big baddies who are controlling everything, who are, whether it's trying to kill half the world because the population's too large, you know, get all of the money, whatever it might be. Either you think that this is, you know, there, there are people who are so powerful and so clever and so good at organization that they're managing to make this stuff happen. Or you believe a bit more in chaos, which is that actually a lot of the people in power aren't very competent. You know, our systems aren't very ergonomic for, for all of the efficiency and productivity we've been working towards. And chaos reigns. But yeah, it, the conspiracy stuff is the stuff that that... I find the most worrying currently. Uh, and of course, the answer to it is education, is teaching people how to discern for themselves 
what is good information and what is bad information and how we how we discern that, what processes we go through. Um, That's got to be key for young people these days, haven't they? Absolutely. But again, the problem is, you know, when you're looking at technology and things like deep faking, will that be as discernible in five years, in seven years, in two years than it is now? Because it's not very discernible now. Everything's going to have to be fact-checked. But not even fact-checked. Because <laughs> imagine if, if you're deep faking video yeah, yeah. of people speaking. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate fact check really, isn't it? Is seeing a video of somebody saying some stuff. Now, if that can be deep faked, then I don't know. I don't know what happens then. <laughs> We're a bit knackered. <laughs> or indeed, we just turn off all technology. Or maybe there'll be a solar flare, which will do it for us. A what? A solar flare. What would happen then? If there's does, a big enough solar flare, which Does that is, blow up the world? No, it would just knock out all communication. Oh, really? All of our... Is that what you're building in the garden? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the, only the sun is, is powerful enough to do it. Yeah, okay. Um, it would have to be... Is that it, scheduled it does, this does, summer? Is that this year? No, but but we, we would only have like about 24 hours notice. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and it does happen. Sometimes the, the sun uh, would bring, put out a solar flare that... Uh, knocks so sometimes you, your phone might go down and if you phoned your uh, your provider then they'd say oh well there's been this thing they've got to be careful with it with with gps and and uh, flying systems um so they have to keep an eye on the sun and the sun's activity but who knows i do think that there might be a backlash against um smartphones and technology social media in general in the next couple of years i for a couple for about a year and a half i went back to having a nokia 3310 just a really basic phone. So you could just text. So I could just text and call. Mm. And I tell you what, the amount of headspace that I had was unreal. The amount of space to think. I mean, it was just like, it's not even just to think, just the amount of space in my life was amazing. But then it's almost like, when you come out of, you know, if you're an, if you're an addict to anything, then you're very sensitive to the, to the people around you who are addicted. And then with something like, you know, technology and smartphones and social media, there's a lot of addicted people. There's a lot of people who were spending four, five, six, seven, eight hours a day, just glued to their phones, glued to checking and scrolling yeah. and that always new, always something else to look at, isn't it? Exactly. You can see why people get addicted. Well, well, it, well the, the reason that people get addicted is because these platforms, and they, they are made, it is within the engineering of these platforms to make them addictive. Mm. That's part of the point. And it's, it's, it's very insidious, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem like it's that much of a problem. And, you know, you've got this whole marketing campaign that you're connecting with your friends all over the world and there's so much good stuff that's happening. And... But actually, it's very shallow, and it's not really connection. But more than anything, it takes a lot of your attention. So when you're paying attention, or when your attention is split to your phone, then your attention's not elsewhere, and the things that need your attention most are humans. Yeah, the important stuff. Yeah. So how do you shift people's attention, then, away from an addictive device? Mm, it's very difficult. It's really, really difficult. I think that 
especially when you're trying to educate young people who they're these kind of shiny things that entertain them i mean we go through different phases you know within our with our own kids in at home and how we deal with technology we talk about it a lot we talk about it a lot we talk about how these things are made to be addictive whether it's you know, Fortnite or whether it's TikTok, you know, all of the algorithms and such, it's made to keep you on there. Mm. So we talk about that and, but, but even, even the knowledge of that doesn't break the, the, the addictive pathways because essentially this is brain chemical stuff. This is dopamine in your brain, mm. which is the same, which is the same pathway as things like cocaine and sugar. So it's it's really it's really hard. It's really really complex. Um, in the school, we've gone through different phases of where people bring in their devices all the time, and then they've their children have come themselves to the conclusion that actually that doesn't really work because then people are just on their devices all the time and they're not using them for educational purposes. Mm. And then, you know, people are showing each other stuff that isn't, you know, that they don't really want to see or whatever. How do they, um, you know, you, you were talking about punishments with the kids. So we, ha- we had one term where we looked at crime and punishment. We yeah. looked at rules. We looked at codes of conduct. We looked at witches and samurais and <laughs> Brilliant. office workers. Yeah. And, and then we created our own. And then the kids didn't really want to put any sort of punishments in place. They preferred instead to just remind people. And then that didn't work. But you let, but you let it play out. Yeah. And then, you know, you, then the, the frustration mounts. And then they started putting sanctions in place, consequences. So we don't necessarily call them punishments. We, we talk about language a lot because we think language is really important. And still now, I mean, you know, nothing's ever perfect. And everything is constantly evolving, especially when you've got little humans who are growing constantly, who are going through brain pruning and who are going through, you know, huge hormone changes. You're talking about a constantly shifting landscape of, you know, a a complex social group. So they need to just be able to experiment and have adults be able to hold that and be, be confident enough in their own ability to be able to hold that ambiguity and uncertainty and to just these, these constantly shifting sands. And sometimes that means that punishments could be really harsh mm. because when the kids are deciding it themselves, sometimes it's perfectly proportionate to, to what's happened. And sometimes it's not enough. And so, so you know, it keeps, the behavior keeps getting repeated. So, but it's no less effectful than what happens anyway in most places. Mm. But it's really interesting. It's really, really interesting to see to see how they're learning and what yeah, they're taking. Yeah, I was going to say, they're still learning, aren't they, as mm. they go, go through that process. What does happiness mean to you? Uh, happiness, I think, is a concept that we've started to see as this uh, constant, which is not true. And there's a neuroscientist from Cardiff called Dean Burnett who's really an, an interesting guy, um, good books mm, great books one for the idiot brain which is great and he talks about toxic positivity this idea of quite a shallow live laugh love thing you know um that everybody seems to be trying to grasp at or at least think that that is what the world this is this is what you know the world and life is it's just con- you know trying to that, that it is possible to attain this mythic level 
of constant happiness. And maybe that's what enlightenment is. Maybe, you know, maybe that's what the monks are all on about, the Buddhist monks. I don't think so. I think that contentment is something that we can aim for. But a lot of the time, contentment is about being comfortable. And a lot of the time, that's not necessarily good for us, that we are constantly aiming to be comfortable. I just want to be comfortable. I just want to be safe and comfortable. Well, that's not necessarily exposing us to new and exciting things or helping us learn or pushing us out of our comfort zone and, you know, making us do different things to, to understand more about ourselves. So I'm all about the suffering. <laughs> bring on the pain, bring on the pain, bring on the suffering. You know, whilst it's very unpleasant a lot of the time, whether it's grief, um, whether it's resistance, difficulty, discomfort, all of those things are help us grow as well. There was a, a really interesting experiment, I can't remember where they did it, but they were trying to recreate the conditions of Mars and they were growing trees. So they're growing all these sorts of different plants and stuff in a big airtight pod in a desert somewhere um, to see how they could grow things on Mars. And these trees just weren't growing very tall. They get to a certain um, height and then they'd stop growing and they couldn't figure it out for ages until they finally realized it was the wind. The wind creates the resistance that trees need to grow tall and have you know, bigger roots, bigger, stronger roots and such. So I'm really interested, I'm really into that idea of resistance. You need to, we always need to have resistance. And so what might seem, uh, especially in a time like like now in, in the world where things are so binary and resist, you know, you just see things as, you know, either you believe this or you believe this, you know, maybe that's where we've got to because we need we need this binary resistance at this point and in order for us to whoa, push forth to the next mm. stage and do the right thing and save the planet. Maybe it's going to end in a horrible dystopian nightmare. <laughs> Who knows? Um, the choice is yours. <laughs> <laughs> so bring on the suffering then, you say? Bring on the suffering, absolutely. And it is, it is where our deepest learning happens and our deepest humanity and empathy an understanding, I think, understanding of of the of reality of the world and of the human condition, and there's such beauty to be found in it. It's when I think we see other humans behaving so gorgeously, is when you know they see other people suffering and are trying to be a balm or a comfort or help in some way. Um, so yeah, happiness is overrated. It's lovely to attain it at times. That's the point. It's, it's supposed to be peaks and troughs. Uh, and yes, you know, I suppose as you get through life, you do want things to level out a little. Otherwise, it's bloody exhausting. But <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, we surprise ourselves. There's a lot we can take. And there's, there's still a lot to learn. What makes you happy then? Watching my beautiful children be their marvellous selves, just, and, and at, at the moment, both of them are thriving, really thriving, flying, really starting to, you know, feel that competence from them, that they're starting to actually feel like, I can do this stuff, I'm really, I'm really good at this stuff. And you put a lot, I, I put a lot into that, so that's wonderful. The Awen Project and seeing all of the kids that we have there, 
um, how they've changed in a year, how much they've grown in confidence and ability and skill is, is just wonderful. It's wonderful to be a part of watching their, you know, their emotional complexity grow mainly just through conversation, you know, just through them being a part of this democratic process. They're constantly talking. There's a lot of communication that goes on. So you can really see everybody growing, which is, which is a, a joy, a pleasure to be a part of. And yeah, my family, my family, my parents, my grandparents, my, my husband, just, yeah, all of my friends, people, people really. People and plants. <laughs> <laughs> We're surrounded by a lot of plants I at the moment. I am obsessed. Can you get any more plants hanging in here? I could. <laughs> I've been thinking about training some jasmine to up, grow up on the, the wall. walls because mm. then it would smell amazing as well. But I find plants have been a real balm for me, actually. I started, I, I was brought up a proper indoor kid, you know, like microchips no vegetables, the telly, the four walls. We didn't go camping. We didn't go on walks. It was just not how a lot of working class kids are brought up, you know, it's just not. Oh yeah. Like, Cause when you did that documentary, you talked about not really going camping. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so it, it took a, and, and then you're very uncomfortable with the outdoors. If you've been brought up like that, it's like, why would you walk? I can't walk. And <laughs> put me in a car. I'm not walking. Um, and so yeah, the outdoors or as soon as there's any adverse weather, you're like, Oh, get in. <laughs> Um, and so it's been a process of, of, um, opening up to nature, um, for me over the past 10 years, probably. And now I am completely obsessed. I, I just find it such a, such a huge joy and resource and just for whatever I need it for really, you know, whether it's, it's just abundant, isn't it? You know, um, I mean, it is now we've got, that's, that's the way that we need to try and keep it. But, you know, even in terms of emotionally, um, what I, I've got such a, an emotional relationship with nature for what I need, whether it's, you know, to be calmed down, to be excited, whatever. So yeah, my relationship with nature and plants has, has grown a lot in the last 10 years. And I'm very thankful for that too. <laughs> Okay, so last question then. Imagine all your friends and family are down by a, a nice beach or something, looking out to the sky, a nice blue sky and sun shining. And you've hired one of these little planes and it's carrying a long message behind or a short message. And these might be your final words of wisdom mm. that you want to impart on all your friends and family. What message would be on there? Hmm. Ooh, that's a difficult one. <laughs> There's um, lots of thinking going on here. Mm, I mean, I, I've always said, but this is a bit, oh God, it's a bit boring. Yeah, go with the boring. Let's hear the boring one then. I've always really liked, uh, I think because I spent my youth on planes, that idea of um, put on your own oxygen mask before helping others really stuck in my mind because... Uh, when I was a kid, I think I always used to think, oh, if I had children, I, that would never happen. Like if I, I'd never put on my own oxygen mask in a crash situation, if I, if I had kids. And I think as you grow older, you start to realize that that's the only thing that you can do. 
is is that actually that's the only thing that you have control over that as much as you do want to help other people and you can help other people you need to heal go some way towards healing yourself first to be an effective mover and shaker however that manifests itself for you um so i think to explore yourself to be growing in self-awareness to really start to understand who you are, the good and the bad, the shadows, the, you know, the shit that you've done, the things you regret, the, the things that you love about yourself as well. And then like, I, I give myself a kiss in the mirror all the time. <laughs> really? Yeah. I'm always going, I'm always saying, you know, well done babes. I know it's hard at the moment or whatever it might be. I give myself loads of love and I always have throughout my whole life. I don't know why mm. it was just innate in me to do it. And I think that's why my mental health has stayed pretty, pretty consistent. Being kind to yourself. Yeah. Just being really rude. Cause it's like a lot of the time other people really aren't and not in a me, myself and I sort of way. Mm. Cause of course we do all massively rely on each other, but just to be, just be excellent to yourself as much as you can. But yeah, so it would be, Put on your own oxygen mask before helping others. And to me, that means something, I think, about healing, about really being able to look at yourself, look at your past, look at the experiences that you've been through, you know, a lot of which has been at the hands of others, trauma at the hands of others. And, um, tr you know, doing that deep, hard work of healing yourself to, to be a more, to be a kinder human I like it. It's quite a long message for the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Charlotte Church. It's been amazing. Oh, thanks, Matt. Oh, it was lovely, lovely chat. It was lovely chat, wasn't it? <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Subscribe, rate, and review the We Make Success Happen podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I would really appreciate you leaving us a great review up on iTunes or your Apple podcast app. It means a lot. Thank you very much. I've been Matt Callanan, and I'll see you on the next episode. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan.